0: welcome to another quarantine episode of evidence-based radio as always you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website errata.com. and you can find us wherever fine podcasts are available <laughs> Let's start out tonight with a story about a bacteria that I've I've talked about before because, well, it's weird. <laughs> Geobacter are a genus of ground-dwelling bacteria that ingest organic waste and, quote-unquote, exhale electrons, thus generating a tiny electric current. The electrons need to go into something, usually a mineral, uh, in the soil, like something like iron oxide, for instance. And the geobacter have a novel way of doing this. Geobacter breathe through what is essentially a giant snorkel, hundreds of times their size. Nikhil Melvankar, an associate professor at Yale University's Microbial Science Institute in Connecticut, told Live Science... Now, the snorkel is called a nanowire, which is a tiny conductive filament 100,000 times smaller than the width of a human hair. Uh, so pretty darn small. And so the geobacter are also very, very small. They're tiny little microbes. But they have the capacity to shuttle electrons hundreds to thousands of times the length of the body of one of these microbes. This makes geobacter a serious respirator. You can't excel a thousand feet in front of you, can you? Malavankar asked. And so, yeah, they're pretty impressive. Uh, So billions of these bacteria are found beneath the seafloor. And in the new study from the journal Nature Chemical Biology... Malvankar and his team have figured out how to combine that energy into what is called a microbial power grid. And so using state-of-the-art microscopy techniques, they were able to discern the quote-unquote secret molecule that allows the geobacter to breathe over those huge distances. They also found that by stimulating geobacter colonies with an electric field, the microbes conduct electricity a thousand times more efficiently than they would in their natural habitat under the sea. Now this could lead to the use of these rather amazing little bacteria as what is basically a living battery. These bacteria are somewhat of extremophiles being able to survive in oxygen-starved soils where most microbes can't survive. And so the nanowires allow them to breathe without oxygen and are crucial to the ability of the geobacter microbes to survive in areas where electron acceptors like iron oxide are usually close by. Now, of course, in the lab, the minerals aren't necessarily available. Previously, Malvinkar and his colleagues found that geobacter sulfurendans grown in the lab are able to survive when exposed to a small electrode or a disc conducting electricity. They form dense biofilms when stimulated by the electricity and move the electrons through a single large network. They stack up like high-rise apartments hundreds of stories tall, Malvinkar. Mal- Malvankar said, and they can all share the same electric grid, constantly dumping electrons. And so because they can, they all share that electric grid, it's due to the fact that they are able to form biofilms, which you've probably heard some of what about before. I know I've talked about them before. And so biofilms are when these tiny microbes get together and they form sort of a new um, conglomeration of many of them together in what is kind of one uh, colony, my, one massive colony. And often, in fact, those uh biofilms have slightly different properties. They're more resistant. Uh they're harder to get rid of than if the microbes were just on their own. So micro like so biofilms are really important when it comes to um trying to sterilize things, for instance. Um and if you um are trying to have an organism that wants to survive in extreme conditions, usually they're going to do that through forming a biofilm, which is exactly what the geobacter are doing. And so Melvin Carr et al wanted to know how they were able to shoot electrons so far away from themselves, because in those high rise sort of uh, micro, sorry, biofilms, they are actually, uh, doing they 're actually moving the electrons even further away than they would be otherwise, and so they are effectively respirating over a distance thousands of times the length of the microbe 's body and so this is basically previously unseen in micro in microbial respiration, so this was totally out of the ordinary and definitely intriguing to the researchers. And so in order to figure out how the heck they're able to do this, the researchers looked at the bacteria using two kinds of high-tech microscope techniques. First, they used high-resolution atomic forest microscopy to gather detailed data about the structure of the nanowires. Actually, I remember going to a talk on this form of microscopy a few years ago, and it was really interesting. It uses a probe that actually touches the surface of the, uh, in this case, nanowire and actually can probe its structure at the atomic level. So it has such a fine tip that the tip is able to kind of poke into and ride over the actual atomic surface of the um, object that's being scanned and can give you that amazing level of accuracy and it's really cool Um, and it was a really big deal uh, several years ago Uh, and so that is very cool. And in fact, uh, lead study author Sibel Ebru-Yausen, a research scientist at Yale's Microbial Science Institute, notes, it's sort of like reading ba- Braille, but the bumps are a billionth of a meter. So, yeah, that's pretty much exactly how it is. And so... Um, The second thing that they did was they used infrared nanospectroscopy, which allowed them to identify specific molecules in the nanowires through the way that the different molecules scatter the infrared light from the instrument. This combination of techniques allowed them to find the quote unquote unique fingerprint of each amino acid in the proteins that comprise the nanowires. They found that when stimulated by an electric field, geobacter actually produces a kind of nanowire that it doesn't use in its normal life cycle, which is why we didn't understand it. The newly discovered kind of nanowire is made of a protein called Z, So that's O-M-C-Z. And so the ONCZ The OMC-Z nanowire is constructed of hemes, which are tiny metallic building blocks that are able to conduct electricity a thousand times more efficiently, which allows for the transmission across such huge distances. It was known that bacteria can make electricity, but nobody knew the molecular structure, Melvanker said. Finally, we have found that molecule." and so that is very cool and then of course there are applications for this it's not just very cool because if you want to look at it from an applied engineering uh, perspective knowing about this new type of nanowire could help develop more powerful bio batteries geobacter have already been used in bio batteries for around a decade And they are known for their longevity, as the bacteria basically can repair themselves and reproduce indefinitely. However, the current that they can produce at this point is very small. It is a tiny amount of electricity, but there are things out there nowadays that can run on tiny amounts of electricity. Uh, Small instruments that only have a couple of LEDs and a little bit of a uh, chip can run on very small amounts of batteries and so or electricity, and so you can use these kinds of biobatteries, especially if it's in somewhere that you don't want to be constantly having to go back there and replace the batteries. But with this new information, the researchers should be able to manipulate the, micro, the microbial nanowires to make them stronger and more conductive. And so this could lead to a new generation of environmentally friendly bacteria Batteries. Sorry. I can't. My words keep tripping over themselves today. I'm very sorry. Um, And so, you know, it's not going to be that in the next year or two, your new iPhone is going to have geobacter uh, batteries or anything like that. But it is something that could eventually lead to uh, new batteries with larger amounts of electricity that can continue to work in these environments where it really helps to have batteries that last pretty much as long as the uh, instrumentation and casing around them does. Okay, so let's stick to underground things for a minute And talk about, this is really, it it is kind of jumping, but um, I just wanted to talk for a second about sweet potatoes, uh, because I thought this was a really cool little story. So back in 2019, a study from Scientific Reports introduced the world to the clever defense mechanisms of the sweet potato variety TN57. And so it's known to be more resistant to pests than other strains. And so the researchers found that when one of the plant's leaves are attacked by insects or damaged, the plant releases a strong odor that alerts the rest of the plant's leaves and its neighbors to boot uh, that the that basically danger is nearby. And so uh, within 24 hours, all of the nearby plants have reacted to this smell. And so the mixture of chemical triggers, the mixture of chemicals triggers a defensive response in the undamaged leaves. Researchers believed that the compound DMNT, a volatile plant hormone, is the trigger for the response. The plants, once they detect the DMNT, increase their level of a protein called sporamin. Now, it turns out that Sporamin is the protein that makes it difficult for humans to digest uncooked sweet potato. And it turns out that it also makes it much harder for insects to digest uncooked uh, <laughs> sweet potato and so or the leaves or any other part of the plant. And so one of the really cool things about this is that it can help farmers to choose this variety over others and to potentially crossbreed this variety with others if they want differing um, traits, because if you have something like this, you can use fewer pesticides, which is always a good thing, Um, even though there are plenty of perfectly good and reasonable pesticides that are not harmful to humans it's still better to allow nature as much as it can to do its own thing because anything that you add there's always the potential for something going bad even though there are lots of pesticides that have been used for many years that have never shown any kind of damage to humans Um, and of course that's a whole different thing that we're not going to talk about tonight Uh, but let's talk about the fact that sweet potatoes are delicious and they're good for you. So, you know, eat more sweet potatoes. I actually read this article and then put some on my shopping list for this week. So I'm looking forward to eating some uh, roasted sweet potatoes with lots of butter, real butter. Um, That's one of my few uh, true guilty pleasures is that I eat real butter. Um, I, uh, I obviously don't ever want to make recommendations for your diet because, you know, I am not a, uh, dietitian. I am not in, I am not, uh, qualified to do that in any way, shape or form. Um, but I always remember there are, there's a group and I can't remember what they're called. They're named after a dentist. Um, who basically he decided that eating uh, grains was what was the cause of all the ills in modern society, which, you know, I am going to remain neutral on whether or not that is, because I think food choices are personal and, uh, you know, I don't want to get into that. But I still remember going to their website one time and there was a little picture on the sidebar and it said, We're happy because we eat real butter. (laughs) And that's always stuck with me. Um, And so, yeah, real butter is pretty awesome. I grew up eating margarine, so uh, (laughs) it's one of my few, like, true pleasures. uh, When it comes to food, at least. I've I've got other stuff going on in my life, I promise. (laughs) Okay. Now, uh, I mean... I'm I'm pretty much addicted to tubers, uh, so uh, your mileage may vary, obviously. Um, I grew up eating potatoes all the time. Funnily enough, because of that, I've actually been eating a lot more rice in the last uh, 10 years since I've been mostly cooking for myself. I tend to eat rice more, but um, I still love a tuber, any kind of tuber, uh, sweet potatoes, regular potatoes, Uh, all sorts of starchy, delicious things. Uh, I love cassava. Um, Fried cassava is delicious. Anyways, (laughs) um, I'm recording this around lunchtime. (laughs) Okay, so let's swing back now to the smaller parts of nature. And so we're going to talk about mitochondria for a minute. And they have a crucial component, a giant molecular proton pump called Complex 1, which is the catalyst for a chain of reactions, creating a protein gradient that powers the generation of ATP, which if you remember from high school biology, is basically the fuel that cells use to actually live. So... If your cells don't make ATP, you're not going to survive pretty much at all. Um, You're going to die very, very quickly. And now, despite that, despite it being the basically most important part of the body's fuel cells, the mechanism by which it transports protons across the membrane has been unknown. And so, publishing in Science, Leonid Sazonov and his team at the Institute of Science and Technology Austria, or IST Austria, have found that conformational changes in the protein, along with electrostatic waves, move protons in the mitochondrial matrix. And I'll explain what that means in a minute. (laughs) And so complex one is the first enzyme in the respiratory chain, which is a series of proteins complexes in the inner mitochondrial membrane and is responsible for most of the cell's energy production. And so three membrane proteins set up a gradient of protons, moving them from the cell's cytoplasm into the mitochondria's interior called the matrix. So basically what it's talking about is it's talking about how protons are moved from the cell itself into the center of the mitochondria, which is a part of the cell. So mitochondria are inside of the cell and we're moving protons in and out of the mitochondria in order for it to be able to create ATP. And so um, this is pretty simple in its It' pretty simple to understand the sort of mechanism, but how it was actually done was not known. And so the energy for feeling this movement comes from electron transfer between NADH molecules derived from digested food and breathed in oxygen. And so then ATP synthase, which is the final protein in the chain, uses that proton gradient energy in order to generate ATP, which of course, its name would obviously suggest that as it's ATP synthase. Um, And so complex one is not only immensely important to basically the very core of life in multicellular organisms. It's also apparently quite large. It has a molecular weight of one megadalton, uh, which I can't give you a good scale for, but anything that includes mega is probably big for its uh, scale of measurement. (laughs) And so the eukaryotic complex one is one of the biggest membrane proteins. And in fact, that's part of the problem. It's so large that it's been hard to study. In 2016, Sazanov and his group were first able to solve the structure of mammalian complex 1, having previously discovered the structure of a simple of a simpler bacterial enzyme in 2013. But while the structure was defined, the mechanism of how the protein, proton re, remained unclear. One idea was that part of complex one works like a piston to open and close channels through which protons travel, explains Sazanov. Another idea was that, re- that residues at the center of complex one act as a driver. It turns out that an even more unusual mechanism is at work. And so the L-shaped complex one has both a hydrophilic and a membrane arm. And so questions about how interactions between electrons and a molecule called quinone, which is hydrophobic, uh, is, um, moves, questions about how the interactions between electrons and a molecule called quinone, which is hydrophobic, Move across the large molecule. So how do they get across this large molecule? And so Sazanov and his team performed cryogenic electron microscopy, or cryo-EM, on sheep complex one. PhD student Domen Kempjet solved 23 different structures of complex one under different conditions, and then by adding NADH and quinone. The researchers were able to watch complex one as it worked, and so it turns out that it actually changes shapes between two main states. They were also able to see water molecules inside of the protein, which are essential to allow proton transfer. Water molecules are essential to movement between water-loving hydrophilic and water-shunning hydrophobic substances which are involved in many processes in cells. And so when quinone binds in the binding cavity, the protein conformation around the area changes dramatically with a helix block of water rotating. And so basically it's dramatically changing its physical shape is what they're talking about. And so it actually moves around and uses water to produce its action, which is pulling these protons through it. We show that a new and unexpected mechanism is at work in complex one, a mixture of both conformational changes and an electrostatic wave pump. Pumps protons across the membrane, explains Sazanov. This mechanism is highly unusual as it involves the rotation of an entire helix inside the protein. It seems a bit excessive, but probably helps the mechanism to be robust. And so that is very exciting to have figured out this part of a mechanism that is basically completely and utterly. Uh, needed for pretty much all uh, eukaryotic cells to work. Um, Almost all eukaryotes have uh, mitochondria in them. So it's good to know how the uh, powerhouse of our cells actually manages to do what it does. Uh, That certainly doesn't hurt. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, Let's move on now. And we're going to talk about a parasite for a minute. So uh, if you are at all squeamish, I'm not going to get into too much detail. But if just the thought of parasites makes you uncomfortable, um, give it, you know, four or five minutes and then tune back in. And so publishing in the journal Science, University of Texas Southwestern Researchers, have described the biology and potential vulnerabilities of schistomes or schistosomes. These are parasitic flatworms that cause the disease schistosomiasis. And so around 240 million people in the tropics have schistosomiasis. Most of them are children in Africa, Asia, and South America. In populations that are among, quote, the poorest of the poor, according to study lead James J. Collins III, Ph.D., who is an associate professor at UTSW's Department of Pharmacology. And so most of those who are infected will survive, but the parasite can kill by causing organ failure or parasite-induced cancer. It can also become a chronic disease that can affect the person for years. And so the flatworms that cause the disease are among those parasites with a complicated lifestyle that includes stages in both freshwater snails and mammals. And so when in a mammalian host's circulatory system, Schistomes feed on blood and lay copious numbers of eggs, while also causing an array of digestive systems, including abdominal pain, diarrhea, bloody stool, or blood in the urine. Larval worms are released from snails into the water, where the flatworm can infect humans by penetrating the skin. And so at the moment, only one drug is available to treat this. And it's a drug called Preziquantil. And unfortunately, it's even at that only being one, it's also not very good at its job, in fact. It doesn't kill all intramammalian stages of the flatworm life cycle. And it doesn't always cure people in endemic settings, places where the flatworm is really um, is is well integrated into the ecosystem. And since this is unfortunately not a disease that tends to affect people with money, pharmaceutical companies have not been quick to try and develop new treatments. And that's why Collins and his colleagues sought to study the flatworms in order to find if there are weaknesses that might lead to new treatments. In the first study, the researchers studied the cell types that make up the flatworms, which was not well understood. Looking to discover the map of cell types of Schistosoma mansoni, one of the species that commonly causes schistosomiasis, Collins and his team used single-cell ce- single RNA sequences, sequencing to identify different cell types based on their unique gene expression patterns. They were able to identify 68 unique clusters of cells, including a population of stem cells that form the gut. When the researchers used RNA inter- interference, or RNAi, to stop the activation of a key Gene in these cells, the worms could no longer digest red blood cells, which is, of course, a requirement for them to live, breed, and cause disease. They then used RNAi to determine the function of 2,216, or 20%, of S. Mansoni's protein coding genes. Previously, only a few of the genes had been described. Basically, what they did was that they would use the RNA interference to deactivate the genes one by one, and then they were able to figure out what had happened when they deactivated that gene. This led them to be able to identify more than 250 genes that are crucial for the parasite to survive. They then used a database of pharmacological compounds to search for drugs that might act on the proteins produced by these genes as a way to stopping the worms, hopefully. They also found two protein kinases, proteins that are known for their ability to be targeted by drugs, which are essential for muscle function. Stopping the functioning of these proteins caused the flatworms to be paralyzed and eventually die. This suggests that a drug targeting these proteins could eventually be a treatment for schistosomiasis. This is a very important disease that most people have never heard of, notes Collins. We need to invest and invigorate research on these parasites. And hopefully this will lead to a more perhaps philanthropic-minded pharmaceutical company or or a specific country to develop a true treatment for this terrible disease. All right. So we are going to stop now and take a break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about that uh, Venus news that has been hitting the headlines lately and what it actually means and if it actually means uh, what the headlines have basically been saying, which is that we've found signs of life on Venus. So we'll come back and talk about whether or not that's actually true. So do stay tuned. You are listening to evidence-based radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly and at other times perhaps do not as much so yet never dull tune in Friday nights 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP Northampton 103.3 FM there are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases wash your hands avoid close contact with people who are sick avoid touching your eyes nose and mouth stay home when you are sick cover your cough or sneeze Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov slash COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org. Or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable to provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. And we are going to shift gears, as noted, to that discovery on uh, Venus. And so basically the news is that a specific molecule known to be created by organic processes on Earth has been found on Venus. And so this has led to the conclusion by some that Venus might suddenly be a place where life might be found or the traces of life might be found. And so this would be very cool. I'm not gonna lie, that would be amazing. But a lot of scientists are pushing back against the idea that this is truly the correct interpretation. Some are pushing back on the interpretation of the findings themselves and whether phosphine, uh, the detected chemical, was actually really detected at all. And others suggest that even if phosphine was detected, concluding that the origin must be organic is premature. Now, even the most skeptical, though, are intrigued, but caution that it will take years to sort out what the data actually can and cannot prove. Obviously, if it's correct, it's an extremely cool result and could potentially have profound implications. John Carpenter, an observatory scientist at the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, or ALMA, in Chile, noted, but grand claims demand grand evidence. Phosphine, or pH3, consists of one phosphorus and three hydrogen atoms. It's a poisonous, noxious gas that is produced here on Earth by... um, by in anaerobic areas by bacteria, such as in sewage and in swamps, and also in the intestines of some animals. The researchers used the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope in Hawaii, as well as ALMA in Chile, to look for diagnostic dips in Venus's light, which indicates the presence of different chemicals, and found a signature associated with phosphine. However, this is odd because the atmosphere of Venus is full of carbon dioxide and other oxygen-containing molecules that should shred phosphine if it was found in the atmosphere, so finding it in the atmosphere would be exceptional. Carpenter, for his part, suggests that the signal may instead be just statistical noise. More lines are needed to verify that that it is this particular molecule, said Michael Way, a physicist, a physical scientist at NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. At this point, it's not 100% clear exactly what they have measured. Way notes that there is a signature associated with sulfur dioxide, or SO2, at nearly the same frequency of light and sulfur dioxide is the third most abundant gas in the planet's atmosphere. Now, the original team does want to do a follow-up observation to verify their results, but even if phosphine, again, does exist in the planet's atmosphere, other researchers are pointing out that that doesn't mean that it must come from an organic source. Phosphine is a simple molecule that is easily synthesized. The researcher's paper is still in preprint and has not yet been peer-reviewed, so that's why there's all of this chatter, because it hasn't really gone to peer-review yet. Lee Cronin, a chemist at the University of Glasgow, Glasgow in the United Kingdom, Uh, Scotland, (laughs) who has been vocal on Twitter about the results, notes that the surface of Venus is thought to be geologically active and might occasionally open and allow underground phosphorus, which, when combined with Venus's sulfuric acid rain, might create a reaction to form plumes of phosphine. And there are other ways it could happen as well. You set up a false narrative, Cronin said. Phosphine is present on Venus, and phosphine has been seen in Earth biology, therefore there's life on Venus. And so obviously he is skeptical of that uh, sort of through thought. Researchers also note that Venus's atmosphere is so acidic that biomolecules can't survive in it, and there is very little available water. Six times, water is six times less available than in honey which is well-known for its antibacterial properties. I mean, you can eat honey that's hundreds of years old because it still doesn't have any bacteria in it. And Cronin, for his part, believes that life might be possible on Venus, but that if it does exist, it would be very different in chemical makeup from that found on Earth, given just the hugely different conditions found on Venus. But, of course... If the phosphine signature is really there, it might be a biohint of sorts that something is actually living there, or was living there at one point. Um, it's not necessarily there in the moment. I think what these guys are doing is super interesting, he added. I just think they should have moderated it even more judiciously. So, yeah we're going to continue to talk about different kinds of uh, looking at the world. And so, you know, they were using a form of spectroscopy there, which is when you look at the lines uh, that are found that indicate different chemical signatures. And this time, we're going to move on to a more terrestrial example of using spectroscopy, and this time in a much more down-to-earth and uh, relatable way to detect counterfeit whiskeys. <laughs> now, of course, whiskey has had a kind of renaissance uh, as of late and has become a rather sought-after spirit. Not that it hasn't always been, you know, cultivated by a certain set of people, but it's become much more ubiquitous these days. And as there is a market for fine-aged single malt scotches, especially now, there is also a market for counterfeits. A 2018 study found that of 55 randomly selected bottles from auctions, private collectors, and retailers that were subjected to radiocarbon dating, found that 21 were either outright fakes or misdated. Ten of the fakes were supposed to have been pre-1900, prompting David Robertson of Rare Whiskey 101 to declare, It is our genuine belief that every purported pre-1900 bottle should be assumed fake until proven genuine, certainly if the bottle claims to be a single malt scotch whiskey. Counterfeits, of course, also turn up in less rarefied markets. And so this is obviously an affront to real whiskey makers and aficionados. And thus, Aled Clark of the University of Glasgow developed an artificial tongue capable of distinguishing between different brands of whiskey. The device uses two nanometal taste buds, one made from gold, gold and another made from aluminum, which are arranged in a checkerboard pattern. The taste buds are chemically modified and then monitored to see how the nanometals react with light change in response to contact with a liquid. The two taste buds allow for two distinct optical profiles of three different whiskies used for the experiment, Glen Glenfiddich, Glenn and Lefroig, while only needing one instrument. However, the tongue isn't a sensor. It can't look for a specific chemical. The human brain develops a map of the flavor profile of different substances rather than scenting, sensing particular chemicals in the food or drink. The tongue works the same way and requires opening the bottle, which limits its usefulness, especially in fine whiskies, where you may not want to have to open the bottle. Whiskies are incredibly complex, despite being made of just a few ingredients. They are composed of thousands of compounds, which give them a distinctive color, aroma, and flavor. Researchers have been working on how to profile different whiskies without opening the bottles. The Scotch Whiskey Research Institute in Edinburgh has been experimenting with a portable spectrometer that is easy enough to be used by workers in order to measure trace sugar levels, one of the key characteristics for verifying provenance and distinguishing between different whiskies. The challenge is that the bottle glass itself has a strong signature, making it difficult to distinguish the chemical profile of the spirit inside. So again, it is usually done once the whiskey has actually been decanted. Now, Holly Fleming and colleagues at St. Andrew's University have solved the problem. They have developed a way to shape the laser light into a ring rather than a focused beam, which suppresses the noisy signal from the bottle's glass. Using a cone-shaped lens to focus the ring of light onto the bottle, which refocuses the light into the whiskey inside. Not only can this now help identify rare Scotch whiskies without opening the bottle, the technic- technique can also be used to identify bottles of gin and vodka, which should make distillers and distributors very excited as well as those who want to enjoy the proper wares that they have purchased. So you don't want to buy a $200 bottle of uh, fine whiskey and have it actually be a $20 uh, counterfeit. And also, you don't know exactly how that counterfeit is made to taste like the older whiskeys. Um... And so it's definitely something that you, that everyone wants to avoid. So that is very cool. And speaking of advanced ways of seeing, a new way of producing powerful x-rays. X-ray beams uh, has been uh, created. And so these are now the brightest on earth. And it makes possible for people to create 3D images at resolutions down to the atomic level, which is a huge, huge thing. And so the European Synchrotron Radiation Facilities, extremely brilliant source, (laughs) opened in Grenoble, France this uh, past August and will be a breakthrough in revealing information about a huge range of items, including fossils, brains, batteries, and even the coronavirus. The new facility will produce X-rays that are 10 trillion times more powerful than those used in hospitals. This will allow the researchers to create extremely detailed, 3D images of, for instance, the brain. Of course, those brains will have to be either outside of the body or in the body of someone who is unfortunately no longer alive, as the radiation from these x-rays would be fatal. There's a reason that every time you get an x-ray, the person who is doing the x-ray leaves the room, Uh, and that's because... In small doses, they're okay, but cumulatively, if a person who is, for instance, an x-ray technician was constantly being actually exposed to those x-rays over and over again, that wouldn't be a good time for them. They would be very uh, sad, and they would probably develop a can- some form of cancer. And so that's why when they go behind a wall, um, a lot of times, especially in a sort of radiology lab or something like that, those walls probably actually have lead uh, sheeting inside of them. And so that's to protect the person who's constantly doing x-rays from those x-rays. So you can imagine that something that uh, produces 10 trillion times more powerful x-rays, Uh, You definitely would not want to be putting any kind of living flesh uh, into that beam. That would be a very bad idea. Um, But it's a great idea if that tissue is uh, there to be examined outside of a living person. And so... It's especially interesting for the brain. And so the idea of looking into the deep recesses of the brain is very exciting, uh, especially to Francesco Setti, who is director general of the ESRF. And he hopes that the new machine will help neuroscientists and engineers to discover the structures and functioning of brains it would be a major revolution, not only for neuroscience, but also for all those applications that are coming up to use possibly the human brain architecture for a new generation of devices, he said. And so obviously having the actual ability to know how the neurons in a brain are actually working and all of the paths of the synapses and things like that could help you create what is effectively an artificial brain. And so uh, sort of much more primitive artificial brains have already been developed. But because the brain is such a complex organ, you need to have this kind of high resolution imaging to be able to try and do anything beyond kind of a primitive um a primitive uh, simulacrum of the brain. And it won't just be for the brain. So using synchrotron X-ray imaging, the new facility will aid engineers uh, in fields like aeronautics and nanoelectronics, uh, since they will be able to peer into the depths of materials down to the atomic depth without, again, having to distort them in any way. It will also aid paleontologists to see the interior structure of fossils without needing to damage those pressures samples Uh, and in fact this summer researchers were able to examine the lungs of people who had died of COVID-19 and they were actually able to identify damage that had not been detected by other um, microscopic aids and so this is It's kind of a big deal. Um, and so a synchrotron is a particle accelerator that uses magnetic fields to accelerate charged particles to high enough energies, which cause them to emit X-ray light or synchrotron light. And so the electrons in the synchrotron are basically, they're trying to continue, uh, in a straight line. And so then they are, uh, They're bent to continue around the loop without colliding. So this isn't a collider. They're meant to just keep going around and around and around in that loop. And the X-rays produced are siphoned out of the accelerator ring into 44 laboratories set up for the X-rays called beam lines. And so then those beams that run through the lines are used to sample the images. And so this kind of imaging has already led to many breakthroughs in, in recent years, including, uh, for instance, being able to see the inside of unhatched dinosaur eggs without doing any damage to the egg itself, just being able to peer right through it. And to allow researchers uh, several years ago to actually reveal writing on scrolls from Herculaneum, which were torched in the uh, eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Now, the European Synchrotron Radiation Facility has actually been working since 1994 and was already the strongest in the world. And so this upgrade has actually increased its power by a factor of 100. And so luckily, in a rare bit of luck, the... uh <laughs> The schedule was actually five months ahead when COVID hit, so it wasn't affected by the shutdowns and the need to socially distance. So it was able to open in August just like it was supposed to. And so in order to update and expand the power, a new design for a lattice of 1,100 magnets, which drive the electrons around the over half a mile long ring was put into place. And so the magnets both accelerate the electrons and give them, quote-unquote, kicks, which change their direction. It's this direction changing that is the key to producing x-rays. When you deviate the trajectory of a charged particle, you produce light, SETI said. And in this light is what we call synchrotron light. The electrons basically want to travel in a straight line. And so every time they are bent to continue in the ring, they lose a bit of energy in the form of light. In order to get that light to be X-rays, you need the strong magnetic kick. And the new lattice helps the beam to refocus and continuously bend without requiring a larger ring facility. And so one of the biggest interests, areas of interest right now, In the new facility is that of histology or studying tissues via microscope. And so right now, samples must be sliced into extremely thin sections and stained in order to be examined under a microscope. So for instance, brains, that's what they do with human brains is that they... uh, They usually freeze them and then there is a process that slices them into very thin sections. And then those sections are uh, mounted onto slides and then they're looked at under a microscope. And so not only is that a painstaking process, it also is using just kind of standard microscopes, even using, even when you have dyes and things like that, it's still, you're not seeing the really fine structures. And so with the beam technology, the tissue doesn't need to be sliced at all or damaged in any way. And on top of that, the image will be much more detailed. This has been dubbed 3D nanohistology, which is a dream for the medical world, SETI said. It represents a complete revolution in performing histology, which is, of course, important for figuring out how our bodies and our brains and everything works. And in fact, the uses are rather endless. It is also being used for examining paint samples from antique and ancient works of art. Uh, For instance, a chip of paint from The Last Supper uh, has been um, looked at using this device. And with the upgrade, upgrade work that once took weeks can now be done in a day and what once took a day will be done in minutes which means that there'll be a lot more ability for researchers to use the facility because of course right now you have to really have a uh you know you're Proposal has to be peer-reviewed and it has to go through review because, of course, it's a it's a finite resource, but now it's a much less finite resource. And so I'm extremely excited to see what new breakthroughs and insights will come out of it in the years to come. Of course, I'm also kind of disappointed that this is in Europe where all of the good uh, particle physics seems to be being done these days. Um, I won't lament it too much because I've mentioned it before. My uh, sadness over the short-sightedness of our country in killing the uh, supercolliding superconductor. Um, but yeah, uh, we have definitely lost the science race at this point. Um, we went to the moon and then we gave up. Um, and I know that sounds pretty harsh, but it's kind of true. Um, I mean, American scientists still do lots of great things, um, and but they do that despite their country, not because of their country. And um, I think that's really unfortunate and sad. And um, who knows what the, what the near future brings? So I, I don't know what to say about that except to acknowledge it as a fact and to remind you to support uh, science and science education as much as you can. Um, get subscriptions to science magazines, do things like that that, um, that help. Uh, or not. (laughs) Um, Just keep listening to me. I don't know. Um, All right. That is all for tonight. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.